Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. I hope spring is upon all of you and you're getting sunshine and outside. It is not very spring-like here in the north where I'm at. I'm still waiting for snow to melt so I can get out on the farm and assess all the winter damage and repair fencing and all that fun stuff. But I will say I'm happy to report many of our spring bird friends have returned. I love hearing the cranes fly overhead at night. So that has been lovely. I hope you've all had a chance to check out, share, and promote our open application. That's right, we are looking for our next round of Agents of Change Fellows, and time is ticking on that. You can learn more and apply at agentsofchangenej.org. And that website is also an excellent place to stay on top of everything our fellows and our hardworking staff are up to. Webinars, essays, podcast takeovers, you can find it all there. This podcast is supported in part by Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, let's get to the show. Today's guest is Rodrigo Alatriste Diaz, a PhD candidate in development sociology at Cornell University and a researcher at UC Merced's Community and Labor Center. Rodrigo talks about his winding path to higher education, environmental justice and labor rights in California's San Joaquin Valley, and what today's activists and advocates can learn from movements decades ago. Enjoy. All right, I am super happy to be joined by Rodrigo Alatriste Diaz. Rodrigo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me. And where are you today? Today, I'm in Visalia, California, and that's in the San Joaquin uh, Valley, about 45 minutes south of Fresno and an hour and a half north of Bakersfield. It's uh, rainy weather, but... We can use the the water in California. Oh, that is too funny. It is blowing and snowing. I've probably gotten a foot, foot and a half of snow in the last seven days here in northern Michigan. So we have plenty of moisture. I keep seeing these stories that the upper Midwest is the place to live during climate change. But I'll tell you what, you better get ready for some cold winters if you want to live where I live. So we are going to talk more about the San Joaquin Valley later on, but I wanted to start at the beginning. So you grew up a Mexican-American immigrant in West Los Angeles. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and anything along the way that made you want to become a researcher. Yeah, so um, I was born in Mexico City, and um, I think um, I came to the U.S. at the age of six, so I Um, I think English came uh, pretty easy um, having started grade school in the U.S. And I think uh, being an immigrant was uh, part of um, uh, what was uh, something that influenced uh, my upbringing and uh, decision to become a researcher and the type of research that I was engaged in. Um, So as a kid, I moved a lot and um, I lived in Norwalk, California, which is uh, south of uh, the southern part of L.A., uh, Tucson, uh, Riverside, and then back to L.A. And I think, um, you know, that kind of exposed me to different uh, neighborhoods, different types of social context, 
Um, I, and I think it made it easy to also choose to go to a school away from LA. So I love LA, but, um, you know, as a, uh, 19, 20 year old transferring from a community college, I also wanted to see something different. And, um, and so that type of upbringing, um, I think really, um, you know, kind of made it accessible and okay to, to move, uh, to Santa Cruz as an undergrad and then, uh, to New York, um, and I think it also, in terms of um, exposures to different communities, um, I primarily grew up in West LA, and West LA is a, a, a pretty diverse place in in Los Angeles. Um, I wouldn't say it, it's as diverse as places like Queens. Uh, usually, the U.S. Census puts out um, the most diverse block in the United States, and it typically tends to be in Queens. Um, and so, in and so um, West Los Angeles kind of provided that growing up and um, it allowed me to uh, interact and learn about different uh, cultural backgrounds. And um, um, I think one of the um, defining moments for becoming a sociologist was taking a community-based uh, research class at UCLA and we're reading this book about um, immigrant Los Angeles and it described this neighborhood on Sautel that was an area that where Japanese immigrants uh, primarily owned nurseries. And so I remember in high school walking down the street and, uh, you know, seeing uh, the Buddhist temple and seeing, um, I think there's one nursery left if, if it hasn't um, survived um, a lot of the transformations in West LA. But uh, being able to understand um, spatial arrangements and the the racial and ethnic spatial arrangements was something important for me to to kind of understand the social world. And so, in a way, sociology provided a lens for me to um, to be able to do that. So I want to talk more about your work, but on your way there. So your PhD trajectory had some had some twists and turns. Uh, you didn't have you didn't go straight through college and go straight to the PhD, and um, like, like some folks do, um, perhaps erroneously, because I think getting out in the world is probably a good thing for most folks. But tell me about your path a little bit, and perhaps how some of your outside of academia experience helped you decide what you wanted to pursue professionally. Yeah. Um... So I wasn't the, the best student in high school. <laughs> so the community college uh, system um, provides a second chance to uh, students. And I think it's an important pi- pipeline for underrepresented students. And it certainly was for me. And um, I had a great time. I went to Santa Monica Community College and uh, they've done a really good job of uh, creating programs that uh, direct uh, students to um, UCLA and uh, local or California-based uh, four-year uh, universities. And it provided this space to just kind of um, figure out what I wanted to do and to learn. Um, so <laughs> I took every sociology class possible. Um, I took a series of art classes, um, watercolor, figure drawing, and the amazing thing was that back then, um, the units, the cost per unit was $11. So 
So I was able to work part-time and pay for my entire schooling with the first two years, which is probably um, very difficult to do uh, today. And in that context, so I also, uh, I uh, did cartooning for the school newspaper. So it was, you know, I, I was having a blast. It was a, a variety of things. And in that mix, I was also involved with uh, student organizations. And um, I think, you know, that was kind of a, a critical point in becoming um, civically engaged. Um, one of the challenges of, of uh, being at SMC and being undocumented was that at the time, undocumented students would get categorized as international students. And so even though you met the California state uh, residency requirement, which is that you live in California for the past two years, uh, there, was, uh, there wasn't an, enough information about, so this was before the DREAM Act, and you know, this was in the early 2000s. And so um, that um, brought my attention in working with student organizations and organizing as a student to uh, bring attention to this miscategorization. Um, and this, this work also um, continued at UC Santa Cruz, and it in, included to uh, work with the administration to, um, you know, essentially like um, re- to um, to show uh, what you know that how the how this issue was affecting students. Right from the administrative standpoint, it was like, oh, we didn't even know there was undocumented students at a community college or four year university. And I think that was really critical in, in terms of my commitment to immigrant rights work and also uh, research. And then eventually um, in, I think it was 2006 or five, um, the state of California passed an assembly bill that made uh, in-state tuition available for undocumented students. Um, so I think, you know, Santa Cruz uh, community organizations, um, it was a very vibrant immigrant rights um, um a community of organizations in, in LA. And, um, and, and so when I finished uh, undergrad, you know, I, I felt like I had this paradigm uh, through uh, learning sociology to be able to um, understand social problems and to engage with communities. Um, so I worked with uh, day laborers and unaccompanied minors. Um, and in 2006 was the uh, May Day March in, in Los Angeles. And so this was, you know, some of the the, uh, the largest uh, marches in the history of the United States. And I think that uh, really shaped uh, my curiosity um, in um, civic engagement, in uh, mass mobilization and how people power could influence policy and social change. Um after that, I started some consulting work um, and I was doing surveys and focus groups and I wanted to be engaged uh, more in the research process. I wanted to be writing the reports or doing design, uh, research design. And, um, and around that time is when I started to apply to grad school and I had that experience as a researcher and um, work experience with, with uh, organizations and and across a, a variety of issues of uh, immigrant rights. I'm so glad you brought up community college. I don't know if we've discussed it on this podcast before and what role it's played in, in maybe some fellows or, or for other folks in, in higher education. My my brother-in-law here in Michigan works um, at a community college down in Traverse City. And I've gotten a chance to visit and a lot of their 
their their school is focused on trades, on learning trades, electrical, um, working out. Um, we have the Great Lakes here, so working out on the open water um, in robotics on the seafloor and stuff, doing really cool, practical stuff that when they graduate, they are ready to be employed. Um, and I just think community colleges serve such a vital function. Just to echo what you said, I, I just I'm just really glad that. Um, that you told your story there and we could, we can talk about it a little bit. Cause I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big proponent of community colleges. They serve a really vital role. Yeah. Um, and you know, I remember the, the faculty to student ratio was like one to 24, which is probably, you know, what you would get at a liberal arts college and in the East, you know, prestigious liberal arts college in the East coast. Um, so I think, you know, it, it is a critical pipeline and, you know, for a lot of folks, it's a, a second chance. And it also makes me think of, um, you know, some of the work that I'm working, uh, some of the projects that I'm working on now with uh, the UC Merced Community uh, Center, which is um, the, this um, high road, uh, high road training um, project. And so the idea, and this is primarily in Kern County, which is an, uh, a county that had, that relies heavily on the oil and gas industry. And so as the um, oil and gas industry goes through boom and bust cycles, and there's greater interest in uh, promoting a just transition, um, part of that is going to require um, training um, oil and gas workers. And so the community college, again, you know, will we'll play that. Um, important role. And, and I'm sure we can expect that um, in other um, areas and in other industries um, that will be affected by climate change. And um, so I think, you know, uh, th- there certainly needs to be um, uh, more, you know, more, more attention in, in how um, community and the role of community colleges in, in these issues. And as you mentioned, just the space to think about what you might want to do. I, I, I went to a large state, you know, Michigan State University here, right out of college or right out of high school, went there, picked a major, went through it. Wasn't a major that I would ever pick. It was marketing. And anybody who knows me, marketing is maybe the last business school in general is the last thing that I would that I would choose. But some of us just aren't ready to choose our careers at 18 years old. So I, I think that space to, to explore is really important too, which I have to ask you, do you still cartoon at all? And were you drawing or were you writing the, writing the text? No. So I, I would get, you know, the, the story, uh, a description of the story in it. And, you know, the request was, you know, how can we uh, visualize um, this? And uh, there was that, you know, I, uh, I have a, um, I have one of the drawings and I remember there was a debate about um, um, utility um, utility reform in California. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, drawing the governor playing kind of like whack-a-mole with okay. like holes in, in, in this drawing of California with holes and electrical lines, you know, trying to this idea of like putting out, uh, fires, um, uh, through policy. Um, so no, I, I, I don't get to draw as often. Um, but, um, I think that the closest thing to drawing that I do now is, uh, I do some art, uh, GIS, um, work. And so, um, it does provide like that ability, you know, that, so you, you bring in data, you, um, try to illustrate, uh, relationships and there is kind of like this artistic element of like, um, 
the software does a lot of it in terms of like contrast and stuff. Um, but also uh, you have flexibility in how you want to visualize it. So I think that's that's the most creative artistic part of uh, the type of work that I uh, do today that I, you know, I could consider art. Excellent. Yeah, totally. So you mentioned earlier this moment, this light bulb moment when you thought sociology was was maybe something that you wanted to pursue. So maybe it's that, but I was wondering if you have a defining moment or event that shaped your identity. No, I think, you know, it was being involved in immigrant rights work, uh, the community-based research, um, and then just the, the experience to do research in, in the workplace. Um, yeah, and that leads me nicely into what you're doing now. So you're working at the Labor and Community Center at UC Merced, focused on environmental justice and labor movements in the San Joaquin Valley. So first, fill us in a little bit about the San Joaquin Valley, because I'm guessing the romaine lettuce in my fridge might say it's from that region. If I'm right, uh, I believe it's a huge ag region. So tell us a little bit about why it's important, why why you're in this place studying these things, what makes it unique, and then tell us a bit about what your research is focused on. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I remember being in New York. Um, and uh, so uh, sal- salads and lettuce, um, the dole um, salad uh, bags that you see at the supermarket uh, ten, uh, tends to be produced in the Salinas Valley. So that's um, a valley in the central coast. Uh, so the San Joaquin Valley is um, eight counties and um, there's, you know, a variety of, of, of produce, but um, it gets exported to across the U.S. and internationally. Um, in Tulare County, it's about a $7 billion industry. Um, and so it's an important industry uh, for the valley um, and, uh, the Valley is also, uh, changing pretty rapidly. Um, Fresno and Bakersfield are, um, two of the fastest growing cities in California. They're in the top 10 and, uh, there's a, a general pattern of in-state migration from coastal areas inland, um, primarily, uh, families and middle to, uh, uh professionals, um, and middle-income families. And so, um, you know, it's kind of like um, this process of getting uh, priced out of the Bay and, and LA. And in a lot of ways, that, that um, provides a lot of, of opportunity in terms of um, uh, diversifying um, industries, uh, especially amongst folks that are now working remotely, um, and then investment by the city and the state uh, one of the challenges um, is to um, ensure that as with this growth, growth and development, that there's an equity lens that also takes into consideration some of the uh, historical communities that um, have existed in, in the Valley. And, um, and so some of the challenges, um, you know, there's a couple of social indicators about on uh, poverty and education. Um, there's also, um, a lot of, uh, pollution burden that's, um, uh, primarily, um, driven by industry and also, um, emissions. So we're an important corridor between, 
um, the North, Northern California and Southern California. So we have a lot of um, emissions from uh, diesel trucks. Um, being a rural county and being a, a primarily rural area in California, there's also um, a, a need to increase public transportation. And so um, folks here commute you know, in, in cars, in long distances, because it's so rural. Uh, so there's, there's definitely uh, a need for that. Um, and, um, and in this, you know, in this context, there's, um, there's a growing interest in um, creating and sustaining industries that have a lower carbon footprint. Um, and so, you know, one of the the projects that I mentioned uh, that's looking at creating um, high road jobs, bringing um, high road employers with um, folks that will require retraining um, in a industry that has a, uh, or with some consideration to climate change and, uh, and an industry that has a, a low carbon footprint is uh, certainly something that the San Joaquin Valley um, needs and is and is working towards. So you're looking back at some of the historical roots of political and civic engagement in in the valley there. So tell us what are the early days of political and social activism in the valley look like, and what were some of the barriers in the region when it comes to health equity and social justice? Yeah, so um, some of this research started. Um, I was doing field research and. I started to interview some of the environmental justice leaders in the San Joaquin Valley. And one of the common denominators was participation in the farm worker movement. Um, so the farm worker movement uh, started in the 60s. There's uh, the, um, at least in terms of like the origins of the uh, uh, United Farm Worker Union. But there's a couple of, uh, there's a, a longer history that um, um, of attempts to unionize, of uh, organizing at labor camps that uh, historians have have, uh, kind of, or, um, have paid greater attention to in, in the past uh, 10, 15 years. Um, and then related to that, you know, there's also this uh, interest in um, exploring the farm worker movement as intersectional and interracial um, and uh, multiracial. Uh, so part of my work is, is also, um, you know, kind of using this environmental justice uh, lens to understand uh, some of the work that was done by the um, UFW in the 60s and 70s. Um, so in terms of like what that looked uh, like, um, there was uh, uh, the union used to have this uh, newspaper that's called El Malcreado. And so I was able to trace some of the the work that they did through um archival work. And so in, you know, in the nine, during 1968, um, the farm worker union was already talking about uh, water quality issues in, in Delano. Um, and then ultimately in, um, through the, um, grape boycott and, um, the grape strike, um, the union was able to implement union contracts that, limited the use of pesticides and also required for uh, workers or for employers to provide a space for workers to have um, health uh, committees. 
And so these committees was uh, uh, served as a place for workers to um, advocate for, um, you know, different working conditions that, as it affected health. And that included pesticides and um, access to water and, and other things. And so in a lot of ways, the union was a precursor to um, the way we think about environmental justice. Um, at the same time, um, the type of work that was done um, wasn't um, considered environmental justice work. So um, part of how the union uh, was so successful was in how they were able to bring in so many sectors of society. Uh, so for example, the boycott, uh, so this was the boycott of, of grapes, um, extended, they had boycott offices across the U.S. Uh, so I remember hearing stories about, you know, folks who grew up in the Central Valley um, in, you know, uh, fairly um, decent weather, uh, moving to Canada and doing uh, boycott, uh, boycott organizing in, in Canada and New York and Philadelphia. And so, um, you know, before the creation of uh, the Internet to get your message um, across, what better way to do that than through person to person interaction and farm workers that, you know, uh, could uh, talk about their lived experience um, the other kind of um, interest or, or the other, you know, this, this idea of like bringing in as many people like um, as possible included uh, students. And so uh, there's um, there's a lot of examples of uh, UC Berkeley students who went to a UFW rally and uh, put a hold on their undergrad uh, career joined the union for six or eight years and um, later returned to finish their, their undergrad degree. Right. And so uh, the uh, Catholic church and clergy uh, uh, played an important role. Uh, It was also a consumer boycott. So it was almost like you couldn't get away from, you know, not eating grapes and boycotting grapes, whether it was through your pastor or whether uh, there was a picket line at the uh, grocery store that you were attending, like, you would know that there was a strike going on and that you shouldn't uh, eat grapes. Um, and so um, that's, and so that, that was kind of, that was the the earlier part of the, of the movement and how it um, incorporated environmental justice and, and health um, into their work. Um, I guess um, Uh, the other comment that I would make is that um, it was also a very transformative area uh, era, right? And so um, I think people's commitment was um, shaped by that historical context, but there was also a lot of strategy that the uh, union used. Uh, so for example, um, folks who um, uh, uh, later, I think it was like after the 1970s, um, the headquarters of the UFW shifted from Delano to La Paz. And uh, this was an area where organizers uh, would work and live. And so the union provided, you know, a a place to live uh, and work. And so it was almost like this, you know, it was like a a Google campus, if you could say, of of organizers. And so that meant that you had, um, that people carried on extraordinary amounts of work uh, through their commitment, but that there was this um, um, infrastructure that was there t- that lended itself t- to that. 
Um, there was also a, a strong influence from the industrial area of foundation uh, model in, in, of organizing and, um, and that influenced uh, strategy and, and messaging in the sense that um, this perspective looks at uh, community associations as uh, a multi-issue and that um, as issues that are important to community um, come along, that um, communities have sustained engagement to address them, right? And so it's not, uh, it doesn't follow some of the organizational models that we think of today in terms of, you know, an environmental justice organization or uh, a union or uh, an immigrant rights organization. Uh, There was this um, interest and focus in, in kind of doing it all. And uh, in that context, uh, one of the interviews that I conducted with uh, Cynthia Bell in Bakersfield, uh, she told me the story about starting a radio station. So getting a directive from uh, the one of the leaders, Cesar Chavez, uh, requesting that uh, the union wanted to have uh, and create a, a radio station. Having no background in uh, radio station, uh, the union purchased uh, a local uh, uh, radio antenna, and uh, she learned how to, you know, run the switchboards, uh, figure out law in terms of like what frequencies could be used, and um, and so that that was kind of an example of kind of like the extraordinary uh, commitment that folks had, um, and how it was fostered by uh, the union, and, um, and and just what you know what was. Uh, uh, what what folks were capable um, back then? I know there are a lot of positives that come from uh, social media and and the use of kind of online organizing and activism. And far be it from me to criticize any methods employed today. However, it does seem when you talk about that that there was this kind of there was this beauty, this spark when people had to get together, had to organize together, had to be in the same room together. And I'm wondering what could a lot of these issues, uh, especially for farm workers, persist today. I know pesticide exposure is one that comes to mind that I know we've covered a lot. So what could or, or should modern food, environmental, climate justice movements learn from some of this early organizing in the valley? And conversely, where did some of these movements fall short? What can we what can we take from what you've seen in those early days of organizing? Yeah, I think uh, the framing was really important. Um so, you know, thinking about movements is intersectional. Um, so some of the framing that the union used was about um, bringing dignity to workers. Um, you know, that's kind of, <laughs> you you can't find someone that'll say like, no, you don't deserve dignity. And so uh, they were very uh, strategic in that. And uh, again, in like bringing in um, the um bringing in clergy and, uh, different, um, different stake. I, you know, I think today we would call them like stakeholders. Um, the, the, yeah, I, I think I would go back to mention the, to mentioning the boycott as a way to, to bring in, um, different sectors in, 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 and different groups in society. Um, and then in terms of, you know, things that, um, 
that needed to change. There was, um, uh, you know, history is always in, in res- retrospect is always kind of easier to analyze and criticize, but there was um, there certainly an issue in terms of uh, diversifying in, in leadership um, in terms of uh, women. Um, the There was an important role that the Filipino farm workers played early on um, and that uh, could have been uh, sustained. And then there's also, um, you know, this issue of uh, sustaining a union model that uh, would be in place today. And that's, that's a pretty big academic uh, debate and why um, the farm worker movement uh, wasn't able to transition into a full-fledged union and uh, union decline today in general, but also um, the difficulty in, in organizing farm workers. I'm fascinated by this intersectional approach, thinking about some of the modern climate environmental movements today and how intrinsically tied it is to labor unions. You mentioned earlier oil and gas workers who may need new training. I'm thinking of people who work in fracking fields who are perhaps exposed to toxic compounds that that they shouldn't be and how there seems to be a little bit of... um, siloing of these movements right now, at least in my, in my mind. And maybe that's, maybe that's changed a little bit, but um, I think that is a really valuable lesson that um, as you said, you can't argue that people deserve dignity or uh, people deserve to be able to breathe uh, good air. So even if you uh, aren't terribly worried about the climate, maybe you should be worried about the fact that the oil field is uh, infiltrating your lungs or something. So I think that intersectional approach uh, is a really good point and uh, can probably be used in a lot of different activist movements. So I know another key aspect of your research is upending this notion that poorer and rural communities have a lower capacity for political and civic engagement. What other sources of hope or inspiration have you drawn from your research? Yeah, so I think part of the um, the message that I want to um, kind of, you know, uh, to get out uh, to uh, folks outside of the Valley. Right. And uh, all of this comes from um, former organizers and the work that they did um, was also, um, you know, the, the meaning making process of, of their involvement. Um, And so again, like going back to this um, idea that um, issues in communities come and go. And so that um, commitment also has to, uh, stay uh, constant and elevated. Um, one of the the sources that um, or, uh, former organizers drew from was uh, this identity of, of an organizer. Um, so there's uh, a lot of uh, work uh, written about uh, Fred Ross and the type of uh, model that um, that was used. Um, and so, um, you know, is this. Um, uh, dedication to to farm workers that was uh, based on this commitment to to organizing. Um, in addition, organize the way that organize, uh, organizers were described was as um, as this abil- innate ability to be an organizer. So you know, uh, under that uh, idea, um, if you were an organizer, why you know why would you? Uh, not continue organizing. Um, so it was um, the use of, of, of these ideas for um, 
of describing organizers as a calling that also uh, pushed um, organizers forward in, in their work and in their uh, commitment. Um, and I think that, you know, that was uh, completely strategic and complementary to the uh, model of organizing um, across issues and, and time. Um, so I think that would be, you know, um, and there was also very real challenges. And, you know, we, we see this in uh, when political scientists study civic engagement across the life course, that there's a high a moment of of uh, civic engagement when we're young, and then there's family formation, and so it declines. Um, and in some places, it shifts also. So, um, you know, rather than uh, being involved in a political cause that's important to us, we might be involved in uh, our children's school. So it could be uh, the PTA or the city council. Um, um, and so as these... Um, as, as civic engagement changes that um, we have an ability to, to, um, to stay sustained. Oh, and I think the, the last um, kind of jump in civic engagement is when we retire, right? So, mm-hmm. so thinking about uh, sustained civic engagement and uh, as um, it interacts with uh, the life course. And, um, you know, for some folks, um, especially, uh, low-income folks, um, some of the challenges in, in corp- being incorporated into environmental justice work is uh, a limitation in, in your time, right? That um, right after work, you have commitments with family, with children, um, and that sometimes there's a, a very uh, steep technical uh, curb to be involved in uh, things like citizen science, um, So, which doesn't mean that it can't occur, but that there's um, that there's uh, different forms of, of consideration, whether it's uh, language access, that when you do uh, presentations, community um, engagement, that you have um, bilingual speakers, that you have folks that are culturally attuned to um, how people think differently about the environment, um, how people have... Um, have um, um, practice environmental conservation in different ways that are informed by uh, their lived experience or, you know, uh, what country they're from and the, the, the context um, in that, in that country. Um, So those are, you know, so those are the, uh, some of the, the challenges in in terms of uh, sustaining civic engagement and also incorporating communities of color into environmental justice work. So what is the current state of the San Joaquin Valley today? And does labor and environmental organizing still play a, a role in the region? Yeah, I think um, so. The other component that I forgot to mention is that, you know, this focus on community and labor. Um, so at the community level, there's a lot of um, and this is kind of it's always interesting because there's um, there's a model that works, um, you know, that might work, you know, People who study labor um, will call that uh, will find differences in the labor union model versus uh, Chicago or other areas. And so uh, there's always, you know, these models of social change that uh, can be adapted in uh, in different contexts. And so right now, for example, there's a lot of work around um, the the planning planning process in in the Central Valley. Um, so to ensure that 
the general plan takes into consideration environmental justice concerns. Um, and some places like Fresno, that means that uh, there's uh, zoning that's more, um, that's uh, denser, that there's investment in communities that are burdened by envir- the environment. And there's a couple of different measurements that are used for that. Um, and related to that, you know, transportation um, and uh, the uh, creation of parks in, in historically uh, underserved uh, communities. Um, so that's kind of like the, the community model, right, of like, um, let's focus on where we uh, uh, part, you know, the uh, social, the environmental justice phrase of where we live, work and play. Um, in terms of labor, I think um, there's um, less, there's a, a smaller um, union density in the valley than um, in places like LA and San Francisco, but there's still a large, uh, pub, the public sector employment is still large. And so there's still um, a lot of uh, existing unions. There's also the health industry that's uh, growing in, in the valley. And so that's a uh, important opportunity to uh, ensure that uh, that they're uh, good jobs and that there's uh, union uh, representation. Um, I think, you know, we, we also have, um, a, we're a red county in terms of, or um, um, uh, there's, there's um, ideologically, um, there's a strong uh, Republican um, influence in the Valley. And so I think um, when, uh, a lot of the the messaging around um, just the uh, a just you know, something like just transition um, really has to be um, um, elaborated and um, and framed in a way where um, it takes into consideration, for example, the culture cultural heritage of oil workers. Um, so that there's a greater acceptance that, you know, that um, this isn't government shutting down um, oil um, and, you know, some of the the resources that will be made available to um, displaced workers and, um, you know, what, what that, what that looks like. Uh, So I think, um, you know, that's, that's a, a challenge that's, uh, related to to framing and also um, uh, more uh, information, um, so we're you know part of this uh, high road training project is to um, disseminate information and to do data gathering about how fo- how folks uh, think about the just transition, um, what their perceptions are, what what industries, uh, communities, uh, labor unions. And um, and industry leaders uh, want to see grow. Um, so there, you know, there is a lot of overlap in terms of of, uh, of strategies like the high road training project. Um, and you know, and, and I think that's that's a way to, or that project is a way to think about initiatives in the valley that bring in uh, different stakeholders with. Uh, a particular consideration for the environment and climate change. Excellent. Well, Rodrigo, I learned so much today about a part of the world that I've never visited. 
but obviously touches my life and so many people's lives around the country. So thank you so much. And I have one more question, and that is, what is the last book that you read for fun? <laughs> so I haven't finished the book because it's pretty significant. It's about uh, 510 pages, and it's titled The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. And it's by um, Mark Arax, and he's uh, um, he's an author that has written about the Central Valley um, and is super accessible. He's also a great uh, presenter. I went to uh, I went to a conference where he um, uh, did a reading of uh, his previous book, um, and you know another an, another area that we didn't talk about is kind of uh, the water crisis in in California. Um, and so, uh, that's the book that I read and, in, and, or that I'm currently reading, uh, for fun. And if, uh, folks haven't read anything by Mark Arax, I would recommend them highly. I have to laugh sometimes at what some of you fellows consider fun <laughs> reading, just a little light drought, uh, yeah. little drought reading. No, but he's completely accessible. Like, you know, uh, he wrote this book about, um, Oh, I'm trying to uh, remember. It's this uh, uh, family in the valley that's, um, you know, one of the um, agriculture uh, juggernauts here in the valley. And um, oh, I can't remember the the name of the um, this historical figure, but, you know, it was like reading um, a telenovela or a... Um, um, or, or a drama. Um, and so he has like a very, um, accessible way to write that makes it really intriguing. So it's like reading a story that I try not to keep it as, as technical or, and boring. Um, uh, my partner does a good job of reminding me about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a real, you're right. I mean, that is a real skill. People that can write books about science and the environment or politics, whatever, and draw out the the stories, the human elements, the narratives. So uh, yeah, I'll definitely check that out. And Rodrigo, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Have a great one. That is a wrap on this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rodrigo. If you want to learn more about his work, check out his recent essay, How Workers' Rights and Environmental Justice Movements Collide in California's Central Valley. You can see that at ehn.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help us out. You can visit agentsofchangenej.org, and while you're there, click the donate button. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Summer Ahmad, and Hannah Seo. Our theme music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. We would love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Anjali Hall, a former fellow and PhD student and Ford pre-doctoral fellow in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Have a great week, folks.